Welcome to the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. This podcast is meant to inspire you to take the next step in your development journey as a faculty member. We're really excited to bring you excellent and interesting content, from inspiring you to teach or supervise more effectively, to leading and managing your own team, to thinking about creative or humanistic ways to do your work, and finally, to build up your skills in scholarly practice. We welcome you to sit back, listen, and enjoy the latest episode of the Mac PFD Spark podcast. In collaboration with the team at Merit, McMaster's Education Research, Innovation, and Theory program in the Faculty of Health Sciences, we bring you our Good Pie subseries on good practices in education. Our Merit scientists and scholars share their education research expertise with us so we can enhance our own teaching practices. We've included an infographic with each episode to summarize the highlights of our discussion. Join us for a slice of good pie. In this episode, we listen to Dr. Lawrence Grierson talk about health profession education. He discusses topics such as the multiple processes model, how his work can be translated to educational environments, and what he expects for the future of health professions education. We hope you enjoy. Hi, Lawrence. It's great to have you here today. So for listeners that might not know Dr. Lawrence Grierson, I'm so happy to have you here today for our Good Pie sub-series. So to start us off, Lawrence, can you introduce yourself to the listeners? Oh, hi, hi Ruth. Thanks so much. I'm a, I'm a medical education scientist at, at McMaster University. Um, you know, uh, if you were to review my my CV or my Google uh, Google Scholar profile, um, you know, I think you'd find someone who has a serious attention disorder. Uh, you know, I, I'm interested in in a lot of uh, aspects of the medical education environments, uh, social and cognitive policy issues. It's a rich space, um, but I do come from somewhere specific, and I, I have a foundational perspective or starting point, a starting point in sensory motor control of human movement. I completed my PhD at, at McMaster University in the Department of Kinesiology under the supervision of, uh, of Digby Elliott. And prior to that, uh, I did a master's degree with Heather Carnahan at the University of Waterloo. And Heather went on to be the uh, director for a short time at the Wilson Center in Toronto, the Medical Education Center in Toronto. And my research in there really considered how the central nervous system could use vision and haptic information, sense of tough information for um, mutually exclusive and not always complementary uh, perception and action movement activities. I'm a, I'm a motor control scientist and a medical education scholar here at McMaster. It might be the short answer. Great. Well, um, I look forward to discussing that aspect of your research further. Yeah. But before we do that, I also know that you hold and you wear multiple hats. So if you wanted to describe your role with the Health Science Education Program. Oh, I know yeah, sure, sure. I, I'm the Assistant Dean of the Health Science Education Program at McMaster. So for any of, any of you listening out there, uh, so this is Ruth giving me an opportunity to advertise. Uh, we run a, a degree granting master's program for health professions educators who are looking to develop their skills and mastery in teaching and learning and in, in education science. 
It's a, a online asynchronous uh, delivery-based program that makes life as a graduate student easy for the working professional. We have part-time and full-time stream options, and you can also do a course-based or a thesis stream. Our application, uh, no, this is not going to go live until after our application portal closes. So, Well, but for next, next year. year. Yeah. yeah, next so, year. So uh, for 2024. www.hsed.mcmaster.ca. Uh, check us out. Perfect. Thanks, Lawrence. So um, I I wanted to give you that chance to share about your HSCD work as well, because I've, I've also gotten to know you through teaching within that program and working with you in that context. So going back to the focus of our discussion today, one of the many areas in which you work and that you study is around multiple processes model of goal-directed movement. So tell me a little bit more about that and around the history and the implications for oh, skills. Well, how, long, how long do we have? Right? <laughs> okay, so, maybe the brief version. The brief version. So, you know, modern accounts of precision motor control rely on the idea of a memory-stored representation of action, sort of a structure that is coded cortically or subcortically, which contains sensory motor or cognitive information about a movement. And, uh, and the specifications for carrying that movement out. And, um, you know, it's a, lo- it's a long history and there's, you know, some really, um, you know, sort of key pieces of evidence in support of this idea of this representation of action. So uh, in 1960, Henry and Rogers conducted this sort of uh, important study where, you know, they had participants uh, respond to a signal by lifting their finger off of a button and perform movements of, uh, of increasing complexity thereafter. And they found that the time it took for them to lift their finger off that initiating button became longer as a function of how complex the movement uh, that followed was. So, and they pointed to this as the idea that um, we're loading something up when when we're uh, when we're constructing movements, and if it's a more complicated movement, it's going to take longer to load and execute. A really good example of this representation of action, though, is uh, if you've got a pen and paper at home, uh, grab it, sign your name really quick. Do that. I'll give you a second. And then put the pen in your other hand and and sign your name again. Uh, and then put the pen in your mouth and now and now sign your your name with their using your mouth to control the pen and take a look at your three signatures and the further away you get from your dominant hand it will become a bigger and sloppier you know name on the page but you'll see the same sort of relative pattern of loops and dots and uh t's being crossed and things of that nature and this just sort of indicates to us that that our uh, our action for that skill uh, is represented centrally and not not at the level of the muscles or the effector that, that you're using to, to construct it, that uh, there's something in there. And all of this has kind of given way to the idea that learning is, is associative, that we build up our representations with experience, you know, through, pra- through practice. And um, the, the nature, you know, the fundamental idea of, of a model like the, like the multiple processes model is that the structure of these representations, its quality defines the quality of performance that, you know, that this representation that, that we lay down is good. But um, what, it, what it's kind of given way to uh, over time is an idea that as we get good, we don't need to manage our precision actions, that uh, we don't need to keep our eye on them as we do them. 
um, that we practiced a lot, that we get so good that we can do things in a rote way, that we build up, you know, the quote unquote muscle memory and we can do things with, with our eyes closed. But this really runs counter to, you know, a whole lot of science that's about 100 years old um, that points 120 three years old now, so 24 years old, it's an 1899 study um, that, uh, that, we, that we're constantly using online or concurrent feedback from our own system to control our, our movements. Um, did you want to hear the whole story about the 1899 study or? Uh, oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. So this guy, Robert Woodworth, who you'll know, you'll, you'll note as a, a recognizable name in, in cognitive psychology literature, uh, one day went out went out for lunch. The story goes, he went out for lunch and it was like a pudding pop and a bologna sandwich or something that he was eating. I don't, I don't know, uh, corn on the cob, who knows. Uh, but he was sitting there on the park and, and across, across the way, he was watching a, a group of men drive railway spikes with, with a really large hammer. And, uh, and as he was sitting there eating his lunch, he, he started to contemplate the, you know, sort of the precision of this task. And, and how they were able to handle this large object uh, and, and bring it to to land on the on the small diameter of the railway tie over and over and over again. And he asked himself, uh, are they using are they using vision when when they do that, or are they just sort of load it up and, and let it fly? So he uh, he ran back to the lab. This you know who knows this could have taken like he probably had to get REB and stuff like that. So it probably did take weeks. But <laughs> the story awesome. goes that he ran back to the lab right away. <laughs> And, uh, and he set up an experiment where he had folks um, draw lines uh, very, very quickly, as rapidly as, uh, as they can to a metronome. So he set the pace and on a rotating drum of paper, and then he took a, took a look at the lines and, and noted that as they approached the target, uh, the trajectory changed and there was a, a slowing down or a honing in phase. And the other relevant bit of uh, you know, evidence that he developed from that experiment is, is he had people do this with their eyes open and, and with their eyes closed. And he found that at a certain speed, uh, accuracy was no better for folks in drawing these lines um, with their eyes closed than with their eyes open. So uh, in here, uh, Woodworth proposed the two component model of goal-directed aiming movement, sort of the first model in this, in this lineage. And what it what he describes is a, is a two phase process where uh, whereby we have an initial impulse where we move our limb from wherever it is to the vicinity of where we'd like it to be, and a uh, and then that's followed by a honing in phase, which provided we have enough time to identify and process visual information associated with that movement, we can use to improve and increase our accuracy at a very very rapid speed. Um, you know, if this was a, a, a live video lecture sort of thing, I would I would show some diagrams here, at, at, you know, at, at this point. Uh, and you could really see these two components uh, in these diagrams and uh, how we we sort of construct this movement on the on the basis of processing sensory information. I think we're just going to have to visualize this as you're talking, because that's what I'm doing as you're describing. You're going to you're gonna have to. <laughs> but I can I can give you the paper to read, too, later. So. And then, you know, over a hundred years, we, we started to ask about, you know, the, the, how um, not subjected to online control, this initial impulse is this major component of the movement where we, where we move our limb from, from point A to point B before honing in. And we came to learn that, that it's not completely 
uh, a rote action that uh, that this is also a, a part of our movement that's subjected to, to online or concurrent feedback control as as we move so and more more based on anticipations like if you can imagine that there's a minimum processing time to uh, identify a piece of visual information um, you know turn it over in your mind to understand what it is and then construct a movement correction to uh, to help you get landed um, that you know that's kind of a long a long period of time you know in reality it's but this we can do this in about 100 milliseconds as a, as a human so not a very long period of time but relatively it's a it's a long period of time and that we have that we have available to us other quicker modes of uh, of appraising our movement uh, our movement accuracy online concurrently uh, and these are driven by our anticipations about what we expect to happen so um, there's this idea that uh, we have representations of actions about the anticipated sensory consequences of our movement. So when I reach my hand this way, I expect it to look a certain way. Um, you know, and when it doesn't, I'm provided a very rapid signal that something's wrong. And it's rapid insofar that I just know that the anticipation hasn't been met. But not not how and not in which way, and and this can happen very very quickly, and is almost always uh, associated with a protective response. We slow down, right? So um, when we start to see these anticipations happen, we slow down and we reappraise and we give ourselves the long loop feedback system more time to to process what's up. Um, probably a popular example of. Uh, that you've all sort of experienced uh, of when this anticipatory control is sort of triggered is uh, if you're sitting in a, a parking lot full of cars and maybe having a conversation with the person next to you, or you got your nose in your phone, and all of a sudden you feel as though as though the car is moving, you're, you, you haven't been moving, and so you sort of start and you you know, you know, this movement and you look up and you look around and really what's happened is the car next to you has started to pull out of the parking lot. Um, but because you have this instability in your sort of visual environment, mm. you're not you're not sure that that's what's happening yet. Yeah. And, and you've taken the very protective and cautious sort of motor right. response to protect yourself against your car being the, the one moving. Have you felt that before, Ruth? Yeah, yeah. As you were describing it, I was just imagining that situation and completely makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So um so what we what we see here, you know, in, in this line of inquiry, and you know, we you know, uh, with Digby Elliott and, you know, and some of the work that I did in my doctoral studies and postdoctoral studies and, and here as a medical education scientist, we've we've really been thinking about the interactions and uh, and the ways that these two modes of control, this anticipatory based form of control and feedback based form of control interact with one another uh, to, to help us be accurate and to build up representations that that support uh, that support precision movement. So we've got two modes of control right there. So we're moving towards a multiple processes model. Like I, I hope in you know the short short history, I, I'm I'm uh, helping you identify that there's that there's multiple processes for our, our goal directed aiming actions or uh, motor control actions or precision actions, what, whatever uh, you want to say. And there's also a few that happen in in the offline spaces. So. Uh, we process knowledge of results after every after every action we make, and we update our action representations based on the feedback we received about our success or our unsuccess, um, which is another which is another process of control that that helps mediate our actions. So, sort of something that happens offline that helps us uh, that helps us online. 
Um, but all of it comes together to, to help us understand how we control movement, Ruth, towards precision outcomes. And, uh, and in understanding that, it, it starts to help us get a better handle on, on what it means for constructing education spaces uh, to teach uh, precision technical skills. So this might be the kind of thing that happens in the anatomy lab or the simulation lab or uh, in, in situ spaces, although in situ can be difficult because we don't tolerate errors mm. there so much. But um, yeah, so I'm, I'm happy to talk about some of those some of those principles as, oh, as we go, yeah. Definitely, thanks for connecting it to uh, this history. And I, I love that story that you shared. I'm just imagining this guy sitting out there watching the railways being constructed. And then now uh, in our present time, what are some of the applications that you might be able to share with the listeners in taking the work and the expertise that you've developed in, in your research and how might we apply those principles or apply some of that knowledge to our own teaching practices or to our the way that we construct and set up our education environments? Yeah, for sure. So uh, this work has had has had um, considerable implications for for how we think about simulation based learning and simulation spaces and uh, and how we talk about uh, fidelity as a as a construct that underpins learning. And uh, hopefully, at, you know, by the end of the podcast, I, I you know, I, I, I changed some minds about uh, about what might make a high fidelity simulation or simulator. Um, you know, often the simulator is described as having high fidelity because it it has a certain aesthetic or certain technological sophistication to it and and i think that there's a there's some error in in that in that construction of uh of the concept um so what what the multiple process model you know sort of points to and, and uh and our understanding of these representations of actions that that underpin uh that underpin the model is that they're built so as to take advantage of the sensory information that's available during practice. So um, because we're constantly processing visual information, proprioceptive information, while we're performing precision actions, whether this is a, a suture or a cauterization or you're doing some intubation or you know, uh, it could be patient transfer, any sort of motor movement, body sort of driven movement, what the model helps us understand is that um, we don't turn off our sensory systems when when this is happening, and we actually are constantly processing that information. So we need to be really mindful about the sensory information that we're presenting to our learners um, when they are when they are engaged in the space. So um, if vision provides meaningful cues to help people be successful, which it does for for a number of skills, then then we need to make sure that that vision. Uh, is available and we're not uh, we're not occluding it. The idea that you might blindfold someone to get better is probably not a good idea. You know that we that that vision becomes and the processing of it is fundamental to the action. Of course, uh, if it's auscultation, for example, uh, fundamental to your your PhD work, Ruth, um, you're not going. That's right, right? Yeah, yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Uh, you know, vision might be less relevant, but then you're going to want to make sure that you have the appropriate set of auditory cues um, for for individuals along the way. So that's that's a big a big principle that that you know we really think about is is we want to sort of embed folks in in learning spaces that are that are relevant for um, you know the context of criterion performance, like where they're gonna where they're gonna do this. 
So, uh, you know, in here, um, we start to understand that that our skill education and our skill training spaces should be built on the on the principles of specificity of learning. And um, that that's to say that, um, you know, people will learn to 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 do to perform well in the specific environments in which they are. So here we have the fidelity construct, right? We want our simulation spaces or our learning environments to be reflective of the performance spaces. And so it becomes very important that we start, we start to define fidelity according to those sensory experiences that really matter and not, and not by ones that, that don't matter. So uh, the esteemed Dr. Norman will often talk about Harvey, the, the auscultation and other skill uh, simulator and, and how good he looks. He's got a baseball cap and a, and a hat on and he might even have a t-shirt and uh, kind of looks like a person. Um, but a lot of those cues just aren't relevant to the skill, uh, the skill that's being um, that's being taught, right? So while he he has some heart sounds that you can you can listen to, you might find thousands more on a CD. So you don't need the hat and the hair and the T-shirt along the way. So um, you know, in in building our simulation spaces or our education spaces or skill learning spaces on the principles of specificity of learning. Um, we start to reframe the idea of the fidelity of education as not solely defined by the learning environment or the aesthetic or the technological sophistication of the learning environment. It needs to be defined uh, by its relationship to the learning goal. So uh, we ask the educator to reflect on um, what is what is the goal of this task and, and what is the fundamental or task relevant sensory motor processing that uh, that encourages success, and, and then to ensure that the learning space has access to, to those uh, sensory cues along the way, so that when the learner shows up in the criterion performance environment, they're cued into the right things uh, along the time. They don't say, why doesn't this guy have a hat on, uh, <laughs> for example. That's not right. example, but yeah, nevertheless. Or automatically assuming that if some uh, someone tells you that this is a high fidelity simulator or a high fidelity environment, that that immediately equates to an optimal learning experience. That's so right. if I could perhaps rephrase what you're saying and tell me if I'm correct in this, is that we need to start with our learning goals first and constructing a learning environment with the appropriate sensory inputs to facilitate that motor or cognitive learning that we aim to achieve in that yeah. You you that got it. You're, you're taking a you're taking a, a a more politically astute place where you're not trying to change how everybody uses the word fidelity. But, <laughs> but, you know, people will call spaces uh, high fidelity because of their aesthetic and technological sophistication, but that might have nothing to do with how effective or optimized that space is for the learning that you are trying to promote within your students. You right, know. and if if I could even add to that is that it may. Uh, detract from learning because of the additional cognitive and right. sense overload that occurs. That's right. Yeah. Great. Thanks for yeah. that point. No, no sweat. So, you know, beyond, beyond this, well, you know, well, specific practice is like uh, a, you know, a really important concept. Um, it's also necessary to highlight that that specific practice might include variable presentations that, that the context of clinical performance is not always the same, that there is that there is considerable variation along what sensory inputs might be available or not available, or what degree they might be available, or what form they might take, or what quality they might take. 
Um, so it's also important to be to be providing uh, you know appropriately variable practice to to your learners so that they come to understand the range uh, in which this performance might occur. And you know we as humans have have a great ability to interpolate uh, solutions, motor solutions that maybe we haven't experienced if we've if we've performed within within a range that that includes that specific manifestation. So we can start to to find a middle ground between two variable experiences if needed. In there, it, it's also relevant that not all variations are created equal, that some are more difficult than others. So the variability is, is often understood as, as an increase in complexity. Um, what the what the motor control research is starting to show us is that um, staged approaches to dealing with co complex variations is really important. That it's it's essential to uh, to start with the easy stuff. And that, this sounds like why am I listening to this podcast? This guy's telling me to start with the easy stuff. Of course, <laughs> yeah. Um, but but we come back to this a lot of the time um, because the notion of providing. Um, reasonable challenge to learners is is salient and people want to make sure that that you're testing a learner and that they have an opportunity to experience errors uh, which is all good but uh, you want to make sure that the learner is having uh, a, a relatively high level of success in in their practice because part of the representation is is laying down um, the most task relevant parts uh, of the skill so starting with something that's of low complexity allows the individual to be more successful in, in their practice around around the target outcome they find that uh that positive outcome uh, more often they don't they don't wallow in error mm -hmm. and then once they start to you know really achieve that on a on a highly regular basis it makes sense to start to increase the variations in complexity to to challenge them around that success but using that sort of success benchmark as a as a way to advance folks through the through the variations is a uh, as important idea. Yeah. I think this point ties in really nicely to your first point because you're describing that now that we are attentive to the learning goals that we want to or the learning outcomes that we are constructing this learning activity around then the next step is to be attentive to providing variable experience or a variety of experience uh, pertaining to that particular learning point. So not only variability in terms of breadth of variability, but also then staging those learning opportunities to address the depth and complexity. So is that is that a good way to uh, reflect? It's a, it's a good that's a good summary, Ruth. Thank you. Yeah. So providing first the variability in terms of breadth of pre, um, experience. So I'm thinking even back to I know you alluded to my previous PhD work, yeah. but I think that Harvey example that you shared earlier is a good one because if a simulator or a high quote high fidelity simulator is only providing, for example, one heart sound as an example of this particular um, abnormal heart sound, then that's not going to provide the variability that learners need to recognize that abnormal heart sound in a clinical context. Yeah, so you don't get enough specific information, right? To, okay. to, to help you, right? So um, 
you're always going to very variability always needs to be uh you know understood through this lens of, of specific also mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. um it, it needs to be stuff that matters and that's going to that's going to happen uh in, in these criterion spaces mm-hmm. um that there's ranges around that information and you know variability is important like presenting that variability is important um, but you can be thoughtful and mindful about the ways in which you uh, you bring variability into uh, into the learning environment. So um, right now, the research would suggest that uh, you want to start simple uh, with your most specific, most simple uh, version of uh, of the skilled task that you're trying to teach um, to allow the learner to build up competence and confidence with that simple, specific version, and then move forward with introducing, uh, variation into that presentation, but to be mindful that, that you don't want to be willy nilly or just sort of randomly introducing variation, that some variable presentations are much more complex than others. And if you can order them in a way where, you're moving from simple, var- simpler variations to towards the more complex variations, and allowing the learner to gain some some skill, confidence, and competence at each of those levels. Uh, you'll end up with with the more robust action representation at, at the end, and therefore the the, the better performance. Uh, yeah. You're going to hear in this conversation, you know, a lot of threads that will remind you of mastery learning at the Barsa group out of Northwestern. Uh, the desirable difficulties framework to Bjork and Bjork uh, challenge point framework, which is Guadnali. You know, you'll see, you'll see and hear a lot of these ideas in, in what I'm talking. And the multiple process model helps us understand why that this is important. And uh, and a lot of it has to do with with my last point, which is uh, around around the idea that that we are highly variable creatures, right? That the reason why we need to engage in online sensory motor processing during our skill action is because we're terrible at controlling our bodies. We we often use this mechanical or computer-like metaphor to describe how we work, that we have sort of uh, programs that we have loaded in our brains and uh, and we send signals down to our limbs to make them work, which is, which is true in, in, in many respects, but um, we're not hardwired. Uh, we are loosely organized and, and the propagation of a neural signal from, from brain to limb involves crossing of chasms and, and uh, you know, sliding down myelin sheaths and all, and all of this stuff. And, and uh, you know, as a function of that, we're really noisy. So uh, as we try to make, you know, a, a series of the same movement over and over and over again, and anybody who's ever played around to golf will, will know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, it's nearly impossible to to recreate the same the same action uh, over and over again. We have wide variability in the outputs of our of our movements, attempt to attempt. Um, so we got to manage that, right? We've got to manage the variability in our own system, and this is where our online sensory motor processing comes to bear. Is uh, as we propagate a movement, we can then uh, appraise it and, and identify: Are we falling short? Are we moving too far? And, and bring these feedback processes uh, or sensory motor processes to bear to reduce that variability towards our, our task outcome. And this, this really challenges people's concepts of what expertise is. So, you know, um, you know, really grooving that muscle memory mm. as, a thing, as a thing that you heard. I told you that we don't, we don't hold memories at the level of the muscle. Mm. So muscle memory mm-hmm. is, is sort of a weird 
weird construct, but we think about grooving that down, uh, getting so good that you can do things with your eyes closed or without, or without thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, it's not quite right. Ex- expertise is, is not the absence of variability in our performance. It's mm-hmm. not, we don't become, you know, we don't start to gain control over, over the noisiness of, uh, of our system. We don't make ourselves less noisy. We become better at effectively managing the variability mm. that we have to deal with. We understand where the expert understands where the, where the danger points are in the movement and where they need to really focus mm. their online control. And, you know, and that really becomes fundamentally the, uh, the, the principle of expert, uh, of expert skilled action is, is mm. managing variability. Um, right. Oh, that's a great point. I mean, I'm just, I'm, I, I feel like it's worth repeating again Sure. <laughs> in that, uh, what you're saying is that expertise development or ex- uh, developing expertise is not coming to the point where you are reducing and eliminating variability. It's rather the opposite, that as you develop expertise, you're better able to manage variability and to focus or home in on the salient aspects of that particular movement, experience, etc. You got, you got it. And I think it bears just dissociating. I've been talking about variation and variability in, in two different ways here, Ruth. Okay. So when we talk about specificity of practice... And the variability of practice around that that specificity that you might introduce to to a learner that's one type of variation, um, you know that uh, that we might have a more or less complex version. You might have to do a patient transfer on a smaller or larger person. Um, you know, you might be doing lumbar puncture on on an infant or a child or an adult. Those are variations of uh, you know that that might challenge a, a performer in the specific application of a skill. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of this idea of, of expertise being managing variability, mm-hmm. um, the variability I'm speaking about here is that that's inherent to our neuromuscular system. Uh-huh. That our that our muscular system, neuromuscular system, is in itself noisy, such that the product the production of movement will create uh, will create variability. And so you know the go- the golfer on the golf tee who who sets up a hundred balls, you know to hit them all, will find that those balls are uh, you know end up being spread out. Uh, they don't all land in the same spot, right? Well, that would be awesome. That's what we want, but they don't. They land, uh, you know, in, in a wide array of, of spaces, which is reflective of the differences in our production of movement when trying to do the same task over and over again. Yeah. So um, two, two types of variability that the, the listener out there should be mindful of uh, when, we're, when we're having these conversations. Oh, definitely. And thank you for that clarification for my own learning as well. Yeah. appreciate that. So uh, I really appreciate your your insights and sharing these practical points that I've taken away from our conversation as well as what the listeners can take away as well. I'm thinking as we wrap up our time together and thinking ahead to the future of your research in health professions education, where are you seeing the future directions taking? Yeah, so um you know, it's, it's interesting. The way we're talking about, uh, about skill development here is how do we train people to be able to produce, produce the movements that we know that they're going to have to be able to make, right? Um, that you need to do intubations or catheterizations or, 
you know, what, whatever it might be. And, and, you know, there's this range of people that we can expect and, and we know how you'd have to do it in this case or in that case. You know, I think that one of the things uh, about health professional practice and, and the reality of clinical work is you're going to be faced with problems, uh, motor or otherwise, that you've never experienced before, that are, that are unique to, to, uh, uh, to that moment, and that uh, no amount of practice would ever, uh, would ever have uh, presented to you because it, it's just a, it's a new thing. It's this new and unique and, and novel uh, sort of presentation. So um, all of this talk about representations of action, um, you know, begs the question to how, how do, how do experts find solutions to new problems, to things that they've never practiced before? And if we take, you know, really, um, you know, we're real fundamentalists about the specificity of practice principles uh, as, as driving transfer of learning, then, um, you know, that that's a perspective that would suggest that the uh, neither the expert or the novice has any, had any experience doing this new thing because it's it's a new thing, right? So, um, but that fundamentalist perspective would say that, you know, yeah, neither of them have had, have had specific practice with this presentation. So there'll be both, both the novice and expert will perform as well as each other or as poorly as each other in this, in this new environment. It's like saying that uh, me and Roger Federer are faced with the, the new, uh, new tough shot that um, Jokovic is, is hitting at him. Uh, you know, we're going to hit it just as, just as many times. It's ridiculous, right? Roger's going to get it way, way more times than I am. All of them, I'll get it zero times. So, um, you know, in, in here, we've got to find a, we've got to find some theoretical explanation for how the expert is able to navigate um, and navigate these, these presentations of, of new, uh, of new tasks, new challenge um, in, in a way that's, that's, that goes beyond our understanding of specificity of practice. Cause you can't, you can't have practiced something that hasn't happened before. Right. Like right. you just can't yeah. do it. So how, how does the ex expert do that? And uh, you know, it, you know, uh, if we look at developmental um, motor developmental work from sort of child development or evolutionary science uh, it comes, it, it seems to come down to this idea of managing the variability that um, that there's some process that we, that we pick up that helps us understand the range of possibility, not just mm. the range of, of potential presentations, but the range right. of possibility for, for our system. And, uh, and in coming to understand that uh, to a greater degree, the individual with more experience uh, presumably has greater access to, to solution making. Mm -hmm. to those experiences that they have not yet encountered. That's right. Yeah. Or maybe haven't yet even been created or uh, have existed. Yeah. Or, you know, there's some new technology that's going to come along and, and how are we going to incorporate that into our practice and, uh, you know, or some, uh, you know, new uh, new virus. Who knows what comes? Like things change all the time in, right. in these spaces, right? So... But we do recognize that the expert has something a little extra uh, to draw on than just than just accumulated experience with specific presentations of, mm. of uh, a motor challenge uh, in clinical space. 
Yes. And also you as an, um, a more expert person in this field than say I will be much farther ahead in terms of being able to understand that new development coming down the road right. and be able to interpret that as well. That's yeah. Right. What a great conversation, Lawrence. And I really appreciate you sharing your insights, your experience and your expertise with us. Thanks. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm grateful to uh, that there's interest in, in this and uh, I'm happy to support the, the Good Pie podcast series. You know, I hope it, I hope it works for, uh, for all your listeners out there. Great. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Mac PFD Spark podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Office for Continuing Professional Development and the Program for Faculty Development at McMaster University's Faculty of Health Sciences. For more information on faculty development, be sure to check out our website at macpfd.ca. That's M-A-C-P-F-D.ca. Here you can find other episodes as well as resources for your personal and professional development. A quick shout out to our sound engineer, Ishan Mania Panda, who has been an amazing asset to our team. Another shout out to Scott Holmes, who composed and supplied us with the music you've been listening to. That brings us to the end of this episode. We hope you've enjoyed it, and be sure to tune in for our future episodes.